I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Juliet Pope on the show today. Juliet Pope is the wine director at Gramercy Tavern in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. Hey, Juliet. Nice to see you. Hi, Levy. Nice to be here. So you got your start in New York working as a line cook, and you were at Zoe. What was that like? Um, intense. Um, it's all about being in the fire and surviving it and getting out alive and feeling really satisfied for having gotten through it, and then going for a beer with your mates afterwards. Do you meet anyone there uh, that ended up being more important to your life? Pretty much. I met my husband there. He was my first sous chef, and he actually asked me out for a beer my first night. Told another, First night? First night. Told, <laughs> Takes care of business right away. Yeah, told his friend who was the executive sous chef to back off. Really? Uh, yeah. Just put that right on <laughs> the prep put, list? put that right out there. <laughs> And uh, I said yes, innocently, because that's what people do. They go out for beers after right, their shifts. Right, right. So sure, go for a beer, except it was just us. So anyway. Um, <laughs> You're like, where's all the other? <laughs> Where oh. are my peeps? Oh, yeah. Um, so that worked out really well. And a few months later, I was living in Astoria in, in his place. So, And how long were you at Zoe? I was at Zoe for a little over a year. And they were kind of doing the seasonal American uh, menu at that time? Seasonal American, which I think maybe. Then in the early mid '90s was a fairly cutting edge um, American focused and all American wine list, which I was hardly paying attention to, but um, that was kind of its thing uh, under Scott Lawrence. Uh, literally 100% American wine list. So. And you were in the back, like throwing pans around the fire and yeah. like uh, yeah. telling dudes to pick up, right? Sticking my hand in the deep fryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> prove how tough I was. <laughs> Sounds so, so like so much more fun than it actually is. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wood burning oven and touching your hand on the top of the rim, sticking things, you know, pulling things in and out of it. Yeah. I do in that here, and it, we don't even have a wood burning <laughs> oven. You know, I don't know. Somehow I manage just in the home. Yeah, me so too. after that, Union Square. After that, Union Square uh, was a line cook there. Um, interviewed with Michael Romano and loved what he had to say. And uh, to be honest, I had my eye on Gramercy at the time to cook, and I mentioned that to Romano, and he looked down, kind of winced, and said, "I can't compete with that kitchen because the facility of Union Square behind the scenes was pretty." 
dire. If oh, you really? Will. No yeah. wood burning oven. <laughs> no wood burning oven. It was a. It was kind of a hole. Um, the kitchen scene and the storage and all of that kind of thing. The offices. Uh, I didn't care about that, but he was clearly very self conscious about it. But he offered me a job first, and so I took it. And there was kind of a nice continuum of history there because Rolf had been a line cook there, but many years before, including under Romano. So here I was. Did he ten- tell Romano to back off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My first day at Union Square, a call came in from the Zoe kitchen. And suddenly Michael was very self-conscious around me. Um, so He's I was like, I'm sorry, we don't have a better changing room for the line cooks. <laughs> uh, whoa. So you're at Union Square. Union Square. You're working in the kitchen. Working in the kitchen. Uh, I was on the Oyster Station. Very romantic to start with. Um, progressed from there uh, to the line. Fried a lot of potato chips. Um Made a lot of pasta. Anyway, great experience. I left there because Rolf and I decided to take off four months and drive across the country to Alaska. Um, this harebrained idea of just camping our way across. And he's kind of a backwoods nature boy. And I'd never really done anything like that. So we jumped ship from our jobs and took off for four months. And that was an amazing experience. But let's take it back a little bit because yeah. I know at Union Square Cafe, uh, Karen King was there at that time. She'd been there for many, many years. She'd set up the wine program. Uh, it was really kind of dynamic and kind of approachable. I mean, what was it like working with her? Well, I didn't work directly with her so much, of course, being in the kitchen. In the back. But she's so open as a person and as a teacher that somehow the message got across that you and anybody are welcome to come to our wine tastings. And for some reason, retiring type that I am, I somehow found the nerve and the will and the time and arranged it so that I could come to some of their um, sort of more intensive monthly tastings where multiple wines were lined up. And it was awe-inspiring and intimidating. And I looked at all of these waiters who were talking in what seemed like very erudite ways about wine. And uh, yet she was so easy about it. Um, that I felt welcome and comfortable. And that definitely, while I didn't do anything about it at the time, definitely sort of helped set the wheels in motion, you know, stirred the interest, if you will, um, to be exposed to it uh, like that. And what was the first experience working for Danny Meyer? I mean, how did that kind of play out philosophy-wise? Well, it imprinted me, I think, for life um, in, mm-hmm. in the ways I can of- still see the... the- <laughs> The tattoo marks, the, yeah, the branding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the sort of whole enlightened hospitality approach to taking care of each other as coworkers and of guests as a result. And so being there, I was steeped in it without really realizing um, that that's what was happening. And at the time, that was the that was the only restaurant. And while I was there, Gramercy Tavern was in the works. So it wasn't a net. All of that that we all associate and I'm steeped in still in Danny Meyer world wasn't so much out there and so public and sure. with catchphrases and all the sorts of things that come up now there, it would it just was. It it just was a restaurant and this is how it was run and Paul Bowles Bevan and Mark Maynard Parisi and all these other amazing people were run and Karen King were running that show and just embodying what Danny was about without there being the term enlightened hospitality. I don't mm-hmm, think we were mm-hmm. talking about that in 1996. Nobody was so. checking the book out of the library and, right, and studying exactly. up before the interview. Yeah. <laughs> was was Paul Bowles Bevan still like a bartender at that time? or did he, he was a manager He'd at moved that time. to manager at that time. And he has ever since been one of my very favorite human beings on the planet. Uh, easy to see why. Yeah. So after after the trip to Alaska, where do you end up? 
ended up ultimately at Gramercy. Little couple of month lags, went and was a cook for a friend who was opening Caviar Roos, a uh, caviar-focused restaurant. And Sure, that's still around. Yeah, it's still around. Um, Scott's not there anymore. He started his own thing. Scott and I had met at March, where was I had my externship after culinary school. Um, so you could do the beggar's purse like yeah. really well? <laughs> exactly. How many beggar's purse did you make? So many. <laughs> and you know how many I busted? Oh, my God. Uh, trial by fire, for sure. But that was a phenomenal experience. Um, not the beggar's purses, but being at March for a summer. Um, and so I ended up at Gramercy Tavern the end of 97 after a couple of months at Caviar Roos. I knew that's where I wanted to end up. I mean, yeah. for a couple of years, I knew. So once we were back, um, a good friend of mine was a cook in the kitchen at Gramercy, and he was my way in. I mean, that's how I got the interview with Tom. That's how when Tom offered me a job in the tavern on the grill that I knew from my friend Bobby in the kitchen that I should ask for garmage. Oh, yeah? Um, to get me in the kitchen rather than being oh, outside the kitchen in the I grill see. area. So Because there's that, there's that guy that's kind of the new guy usually that's just starting, and he's the guy that you can see from the bar area. Yeah, he's the guy getting his ass kicked on a uh, regular basis. Not that you're not inside. It's just a little more public outside. Um, but my friend Bobby gave me the insider tip of get garmage if you can. And so I mentioned it to Tom, who couldn't be more easygoing, and he said, Sure. This is Tom Colicchio yeah. at the time. Tom Colicchio. Um, and he said, yeah, sure. Why not? So I started as a line cook in December 97, Garmage, and then pretty quickly got onto the hotline and did that for a couple of years. And what was it like working uh, with Tom on the line? I loved it. Um, he is an easygoing guy, um, easy to be around, um, smart, funny, laid back but serious, um, not a screamer. Um, at least not then, and I trust not now. Um, and he had a great team of sous chefs, some with more experience, some on the younger side. But it was just a great crew um, of a lot of really talented people who I'm still honored to know and have known. So Was that like also the Marco Canora kind of time period? That was the Marco Canora time period. He was a new-ish sous chef at the time, um, kind of second in command at night. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And... You know, at the time, Jonathan Benno and so on, like really talented, Damon Wise, really talented folks uh, in the kitchen. Wow. James Tracy, who's the chef of chef of craft now, Akhtar, Pata, uh, Akhtar oh, right, Nawab. Right, right. Um, so all my cronies are now people who are extremely successful right. uh, still in the business. And uh, we had a blast uh, and really, really good times and good memories. And I, I love being the, the girl in the, in the boys' locker room. And, and this was all kind of before craft opened, so Tom's around a lot. And exactly. people who went on to open craft were, were kicking around. Exactly. And it was uh, Tom's menu. Uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. He was there, uh, and as I was learning to cook and finding myself kind of at the top of the heap on what we called meat roast, um, he was there. I mean, he was saying, "Do this, do that. No, nope, try it this way, try it that way." So it was really special. I mean, you should expect that if you're working for a chef, but we all know that you can't expect that now if you go to work for someone of that stature. At this point, Tom's not at your elbow. Even if you're working at craft or craft steak Even or wherever if you've got it is, the TV on yeah. behind, behind <laughs> your line. <laughs> exactly. So I had what I feel like was a really special moment in Gramercy Tavern history of Tom actually being there. Plus, I was a nighttime cook, and that's when he tended to be around. Um, sure. He had a 
Lieutenant uh, Johnny, who had been with him for years, uh, who ran the daytime. Who ran the daytime, yeah. right? And, and he I ran was, it for a billion years. He ran it for a billion years, and I was never day crew. So Tom was more of a night night guy anyway. And so um, I got a lot of time to be around him, and he's still one of my favorite people. So, Is there anything you think you took from that, like philosophically, in terms of how you approach things? Any big lessons on that one? Mm, from working with Tom, you mean? Yeah, more like or, just being in the back of the house with that kind of crew. Oh. Like, what what is it that you think maybe you? Because it just can't be that every sommelier approaches it the same way. Because nobody else came up with a line cook. Uh, you don't think so everyone should have to do that? No, I think actually Tom? it's great if they did. I'm just <laughs> saying that I don't know anyone else who has. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, what do you think it may have lent to the the later front of the house persona? Persona, I am not sure about, but in terms of maybe work ethic, but I don't think that's work habits, maybe not ethics so much, because you either have that or you don't, whatever you're doing, um, but maybe more habits. You have to be super organized as a line cook. I mean, if you're successful, mm -hmm. really organized, making your prep lists, really thorough. And I learned that from my husband, who was the seasoned cook and chef at that point as I was coming along brand new, uh, and he hounded me about making lists, and that was absolutely critical. Um, What's so, the shopping list look at you guys' house? Like, when it's, like, time to go do the groceries, how um, in-depth is it? Oh, paper towels, uh, <laughs> bottled water, and yogurt. <laughs> that's it? Because that, everything that, else is, like, <laughs> coming from the Cisco there's, truck? There's, nothing that else, stops the yeah, there's not a lot else living in our house, um, as we're both restaurant people. Um, but anyway, I, I would say being extremely attentive to detail. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. Also, obviously, you know, the rigors of just working the floor, working in the cellar, how physical it is. Right. I was really well, more than well equipped for that because I was for years used to such a physical, hands-on, rigorous existence that I think it really equipped me. Maybe tainted or helped me. I'm not sure which. What I love, I love getting dirty. I love move. Literally, I love moving the cases around in the cellar. I 50, 100 of them, whatever it is, I want to be that guy. I want to be the one placing everything, putting it where I want, moving things around. Um, not so practical when I'm supposed to be doing a lot of other things too and should be delegating that. But as a cook, you're so hands-on and so in it that I love to be in it. And I'm not afraid to, to sweat and get dirty. And somehow they taught me to clean up and put on a suit and come out and be able to, you know, put on a good face. But my nature is more sort of to get down and dirty. And um, so I think being a line cook very much informed that kind of drive and sort of physical being, if you will. But you also worked like the pastry station too, right? For a little while? I did. I worked with Claudia for about six months, which was great just as a brand. I mean, the this is Claudia Fleming. Claudia Fleming. Um, all my crew on the savory side were like, you're doing what? Um, <laughs> you're leaving like, us? You're going over there to make cakes? We're going to kick your ass. <laughs> then we're going to go kick all those people in pastry's ass. <laughs> it was really kind of funny to make that transition. So and, what was the thinking process like? Why did you do it? Well, at the time, I was going to eventually be, Tom had asked me to be a sous chef at Gramercy because Marco Canora was eventually going to be leaving to go to craft, and I wanted to see that side of the kitchen, so mm -hmm. it made sense to me. I worked my way all the way around the line, so there was really nowhere else to go, um, and so I switched to pastry to see what that was about, and obviously, Claudia was an inspiring 
sure if daunting figure no no matter what perspective you were coming from so i jumped in there as a brand new pastry prep and service person uh into the fire in a different way and obviously different skills are required and it was really cool to get to work in that way much more precisely um where things actually could go wrong much more easily uh, mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. on the savory side uh things aren't as easily fixed um but that was tremendous experience um and then it ended up that things took a little longer in the craft side to happen, so the Sioux thing wasn't happening yet. And in the meantime, my husband, Rolf, the one we spoke about, about meeting at Zoe, um, had been firmly committed to opening his own restaurant. So, oh, okay. as, so as he got more serious about that and sort of drew me into that dream, we felt like one of us needed to see what the front of the house was all about. Ah. Um, that wasn't something we woke up with overnight, but over time, it just became clear that two cooks probably shouldn't open a restaurant without mm-hmm, mm-hmm. any clue about the front of the house. So he, having been cooking at that point for probably 25 years, was not going to be the guy um, to go out in in you know waiter penguin suit. Uh, that was going to be me. So I talked to Tom. I said, you know what? I actually want to give back your offer of the Sioux thing if you will let me move to being a waiter at Gramercy. And he said, sure, because he's that kind of guy. Um, and that opportunity was there. Um, Paul Greco was in the front of the house and as the AGM service and wine director, and he took me on as a little mini project. Um, and the rest is sort of history in terms of where I am now. So, uh, what was it like working with Paul at that time? I mean, what was going on? Was he still wearing his zoot suits back then? Did he have the goat beard? I mean, what was the what was the style? <laughs> there was no goat beard, um, but there were sort of picnic plaid, mm. sort of jackets, and and yeah, he, good for all seasons. Good for all seasons. Yeah, picnic plaid. Um, the man made a statement every day uh, in many ways. Um, How did that play out? It well, from the first day as a waiter for which I was terrified, having never done this except for one brief stint on a ranch in Wyoming that hardly counts as fine dining service. Um, I was pretty intimidated, um, even though I knew everybody, obviously, that which was helpful. Um, I didn't know a thing about the front of the house, and he literally taught me how to carry plates and crumb tables and the like. Uh, but sitting there in family meal just the very first day with a wine poured in front of everybody and listening to the banter, the conversation, the tasting led by Paul, I was completely blown away. It was fascinating. And what was in the glass was delicious, some German Riesling, and, you know, the die was cast at that point. Um, and I, the rest was was magic, really. And he, I guess, knew a sucker when he saw one and asked me if I wanted to do this thing that we call the wine pull at Gramercy, which is basically being a cellar rat I feel like that happened in the first week or two. And I said, sure. So for the rest of my days, continuing now, uh, two mornings a week, I was there at eight o'clock in the morning to be that person stocking the bar and keeping up with our low and 86 list and all of that. Um, We rely on that team still today. I have someone every day and they're doing the same job. And that's how I started. And I got completely hooked. Uh, And that first week was the monthly wine tasting. Um, Paul started a series 10 months out of the year. We drop it in November and December. Uh, I still do the same, but January through October, an hour long, multiple wine tasting with a theme. Uh, Paul is hardcore and I'm a little more big picture. He's more probably narrower picture in terms of education in the sense that he would that year it was an entire year of northern rhone 
Really? A year? A 365 year. days? Yeah. Yeah. 10 months of monthly tastings, all Northern Rhone. So my first week I was there for, it was either Cote Roti or Cronas. I can't remember which now. And I love both dearly. Again, I think an imprint was made uh, at the time. Um, and I was... I, I I thought I am in the wrong place. Had this lineup of wine in front of me. Everybody starts, you know, tasting and scribbling notes, and thought, what in the hell am I supposed to do now? I don't know the words. I don't know the words for this. I don't know the process for this. I mean, I had sat in on a couple of Karen's tastings, but they were much less sort of formal seeming, and I was in awe and a bit in shock, and again, completely hooked once it started rolling. So that first week of being a waiter was seminal. I mean, it, it changed the, re- the course of my life. I really did get hooked between family meal and that Northern Rhone tasting. Do you, so. Did you think that some of your descriptions in terms of how you looked at wine may have been influenced by the time that you spent in a kitchen? Were you looking at things more in kind of ingredient style? Were you thinking of like different spices when you tasted wine or no? Not so much in terms of vocabulary because it took a long time. And I'm still not the best wine describer. I'm not a tasting notes person. That's why you're never going to see my notes out in public, uh, like so many of yours uh, at various events about various wines. Um, But I think it just informs my approach to wine more than it did my language. I mean, coming from the back of the house, and my whole life was about food even before I became a line cook. I lived in Italy for a year, et cetera, et cetera. And so I had been obsessed with food, really, for quite some for my whole life, basically. You know, I had the mom who actually made real mashed potatoes, no potato buds out of the box. Um, so I feel like I was spoiled from early on. And so bringing that to wine, I don't know that it gave me any huge advantage, but just as having been a line cook it and understanding, especially what our food, Gramercy's food was, exactly what was in that dish, there was a natural connection as I started to learn to taste wine about how those things go together. So... Um, maybe a little bit of a leg up in a sense um, as a new waiter and wine person, again, totally intimidated by the scene, but having this sort of gut instinct, which people seem to value in me, even as I was a newbie, like, oh, well, you know, what's in that dish again? How do you make that? And okay, this is what would make sense with that. I learned from them and they learned from me. So I was this kind Everyone of weird new resource. Sit next to you during you the know. menu quiz. Right, they did, like exactly. I want to sit next to Juliet. <laughs> they um. didn't actually have to go to the kitchen to find out what <laughs> right. was in the dish. Exactly. Uh, so it was, it was a nice blending of of you know skills and strengths, I think. But so at Gramercy though, there's no formal sommelier. It's more Correct. like a wine director situation. So it's important that the staff is is pretty up to snuff on the. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, or it seems it now now that I'm so deep into it. But for many years, I just took it for granted that this is the world that we live in. And the way Danny set up the restaurant was with a wine director who, at the time, was Steve Olson, still a big influence in my life, even though we did not work together. Uh, still a mentor, but uh, of he's sorts. like taking you on trips. I uh, mean, you guys went to Sherry together. We did. Like that. that was an amazing experience. Um, and eventually, Paul inherited that mantle from Steve. But in any case. Danny set up the restaurant with a wine director, but not it was an American restaurant. So there was not going to be a sommelier team. And really from the beginning and still, we're training the staff to be their own sommeliers. Mm-hmm. And I've never really asked Danny why. Um, it makes sense to me, knowing him, that he would want it to be a little more sort of democratic and open and not some stiff, by implication, stiff sort of French situation where 
there were, were people who would scurry to your table to talk only about wine and not do anything else, who wouldn't clear plates from your table. Uh, and we're very much born and bred there to do everything. Uh -huh. uh, as we managers say, and I'm as much a manager as I am wine director, we're glorified back waiters, uh, oftentimes, um, used to just, again, getting down and dirty. Um, and the way that Danny set up the restaurant was not a sommelier system, and we have continued with it. And that's why I feel really strongly that the whole point of my existence there is to educate the staff. I mean, because they are the ones who probably 80% of the time are talking wine with a guest uh, until a guest says, may I see the sommelier? And then if I'm not there, which is often the case since I only work two nights a week and work three days, um, one of my fellow managers comes to the table. They're in a suit. They've come up through the same system. So everybody has been steeped in it and has varying levels of knowledge, obviously, and focus on beverage. But everyone is capable of going to the table if a suit is needed. But most of the time, it's the bartender, the tavern waiter, the dining room captain who is conducting that whole operation, if you will. And I love that. I, at some point, I think realistically, we're so busy now that it, and we're at such a level of prominence, I guess, mm -hmm. that I think that we, we're talking about instituting some sort of at least wine captain system, if mm -hmm. not a true sommelier system that may or may not happen in my lifetime there, but I think it may happen in my lifetime because it, it makes sense. Um, how to construct it is a, is a whole other yeah, that's a big room. Can of worms, don't know. I'll be talking to you about, for instance, how to do that. I'm starting to ask my Psalm friends how this system works, but... I would say don't do the uh, the Garadon, like the rolling Garadon. No, <laughs> like, can you no, imagine no trying Garadon, to do it in, no the, in the bar room at Gramercy? <laughs> oh, excuse me, miss. Like... <laughs> <laughs> like, fingers and toes, yeah. fingers and toes. You can like come to like a stewardess. Like, have your left feet right here. Oh my god, um, it's it's a it's kind of a, a daunting beast to consider, but may may come to be necessary. But the point is that the staff is super involved. So even when people come to work for us who aren't already wine geeks, uh, they get they get hooked in some regard. You end up knowing you tap accidentally or intentionally, those veins in people where they didn't even know they cared about wine and suddenly they're obsessed with Chenin Blanc or they, you know, know that they own, they come in only liking California wines and then they end up finding, you know, German Cabinet wines dry. You know, I mean, the, the, really people's palates change over the time that they're at the restaurant. And it's amazing to see like the growing sort of sophistication and knowledge level um, of each and every person. Again, even if they're not geeked out about it, they're not all, but everybody's open to it. And you have to be, to be honest, you can't work there and have zero interest and zero intention of learning anything. It's impossible. You won't survive there. It's too busy and the expectations are too high on our part as a management team. If you don't care anything about food or beverage, then, well, first of all, we're not going to hire you. But if you slip through, you're not going to last. Um, it's absolutely critical. There's got to be a level of passion there. So we don't care if someone's a, I don't care if someone's a big wine geek walking in because that doesn't necessarily serve anybody or anything. But if you can tap that vein, and sometimes it's the people who sort of stumble into being the cellar rats, the wine pullers, who, again, weren't big wine geeks, but they're not afraid to get up in the morning and spend a couple hours and just get to know the program better, they end up getting hooked, bartenders get hooked, everybody gets hooked on, on some level, and it's really fun. Um, but that's my main mission, is to, is to educate those guys so that they feel smart when they go to the table, um, 
and feel competent and confident and realize that they don't have to have tasted every single wine to be able to talk to somebody about Chablis versus Chassagne Marocher, which I firmly believe is true. They can't have tasted all the wines. I haven't tasted all the wines. There are things that have been in storage that I pull out, put on the list. I haven't had that wine that's been sitting in the cellar for five years. So nor can they have tasted everything. So I think for me, the important thing is to give them confidence and to do that through teaching at a more general level and then down to specifics over time. So that's why I won't do <laughs> a year of Germany for our monthly tastings like my blessed predecessor did or a year of Northern Rhone. I'll do two or three classes on the Northern Rhone, two or three classes on Germany, four or five on Burgundy, four on Bordeaux, but not a whole year on a region because there's so much that they have to take in um, that I feel like we can't really afford that level of specificity for an entire year. It's finding the balance, but I think teaching from that general level on down is how to give everybody confidence. Well, I feel like it must have worked because uh, a couple of people at least have gone from management at Gramercy to beverage director somewhere else like it's happened more than once so for sure gms managers beverage people i mean it, we in a nice way um my colleagues and i feel like we've become a finishing school of mm -hmm. sorts and a lot of people leave to go on to their first beverage director job their first management job their first agm or gm job um or to open their own restaurant so and some people skip the steps of managing and beverage directing and then just go open their own place all of which is really exciting i mean we feel really honored that people are starting to come to us almost with that expectation, like that knowing that they will be prepared and armed to go from us out into the world to do whatever that thing is they have their eye on in five years. Um, and so it's really an honor and a privilege to be in this position of having people feel that way about being there and being able to send them out into the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so. When I sit in that, in that bar room, I look around and I look at what is really was or is the blueprint for what later happened and what, what you think of as the Brooklyn mm. Renaissance. Mm. Like when you, people are like, hey, we're going to throw a bunch of um, like uh, antiques, you know, New York style, colonial style mm -hmm. antiques. We're going to have some things with antlers. Some we're gonna, rustic food. We're, yeah, rustic food that's also comforting and wholesome. We're going to mm -hmm. do some big proteins. Maybe we'll have a tasting menu for people who want it, but It'll we'll also have it walk yeah. in. Exactly. Right. And we're going to, you know, really influence, uh, like, you know, just the style of the room, like the tavern room. Mm -hmm. Like, for me, it's all there. It's like, It was like a blueprint for what later happened again and again and again and again in Brooklyn. Right, including the dynamic wine by the glass list or draft beer list or whatever the thing in those restaurants is now. But a, really, you're right, a real emphasis on quality. Um, at a casual level, which I think is what Danny does so well. I mean, I think that's where his heart really lies, is doing something really fine, yet making it feel very comfortable. Um, he's a master of that, and I feel like he nailed it almost more than anywhere else of his or anyone's, you know, in the tavern of Gramercy Tavern. I remember when I used to work at a French restaurant, which is actually, I met you, you came in uh, with mm. Ralph as a customer, but I remember working there and uh, everyone I worked with was really keyed on to the Michelin thing and that kind mm -hmm. of that kind of dining. And somebody asked me what my favorite restaurant was, and I said, "Well, Gramercy Tavern." And the guy kind of looked at me, and he was like, "Who was obviously European?" And he said, uh, "You know, it, that restaurant is very American." 
And I think he meant it as an <laughs> insult, but I always thought it was like a compliment because I always thought it like has actually kind of defined a lot mm-hmm. of, of what has subsequently been American fine dining, like in an American idiom. Sure, which everybody takes for granted now. Right. Um, absolutely. I think Danny was a pioneer of the style. So you're there, and uh, Karen King comes back for a little bit. She came back. She had put in almost two decades at Union Square, needed a change of scenery and pace. Um, Kevin Mahan had gone from being manager to general manager. And when did he start? He started in, let's see, I started in 97. He came along in 99 as a waiter. So you, you kind of predated Kevin. Now he's like a partner. Yeah, he still gives me a hard time for switching from from savory to sweet. I'm fact. amazed that like <laughs> Tom Colicchio didn't do that. You know what I mean? That I he wasn't like, what do you mean? You're not going to be a Sue and you're going to take orders. Like, like, what? <laughs> like Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's funny. But he uh, started as a waiter and became GM. I, I actually was trying to f- figure this out this morning. I want to say in maybe 2004. I might be wrong about that. But he was a waiter, manager, wine cellar rat all that, became the GM. At the time then, Paul was on his way out to start his whole empire, which we all know and love now, hearth and terroir world. Um, And he wanted, Karen wanted somewhere to go from Union Square. Kevin needed a beverage director. I had been the assistant and could have been the logical person, but I didn't have experience. Mm -hmm. And since he was new in his job, he felt more comfortable bringing on Karen, with all of her worlds of experience and wine wisdom and everything else from Union Square to just sort of slot into Gramercy um, to do that job for a while. And that was amazing for us to go from Paul to Karen, completely different styles. Um, What kind of sums that up for you? Well, Paul's very opinionated Uh uh, and can be somewhat insistent on his viewpoint, whereas Karen just opens things up and says, well, what do you think, see, feel, smell. I want you to just feel comfortable. I want your guests just to feel comfortable at the table. She was not so much interested in the sort of geeky academic side, like Paul. And I fall somewhere in the middle. So they were both terrific influences for me. I'm a total nerd, yet also am into just the whole pleasure of it and relaxing and not worrying about anything for our guests and myself. Do you think that that combo is what makes your list so kind of something for everybody? Like, I feel like anybody who walks through that door, whether they be total geek or total newbie, is going to find a comfortable experience that they're into. I think so. I mean, and the thing is, I'm given latitude. Nobody has ever said to me, you need to have a section of Burgundy this large and you should have. Really? No one's ever had that conversation? Because it seems like so well dialed out, like dealt out. Well, and I didn't invent it. I've just... You know, we've all had our influences as beverage directors there over time on the look of the list uh, and the style of the list. But there's a kernel of it that's always been there. I haven't radically changed anything. It's just morphed over time. Uh, but no one. You always say that, but it's been from, so long. Well, I mean, come I know, on. I know. I know. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I've had my impact on it for sure, but I didn't start it. I feel like I'm just helping something continue to develop that a great thing that was set in place. Um, and I'm like the steward of it now, which is a wonderful privilege, really. I mean, a lot of work as well, but a huge privilege. Um, so nobody, no, nobody, whether it be Danny, Kevin, Paul Bullsbevin, Richard Crane, none of those people have ever said, we want you to have a section this big of Barolo, and we want you to have a section of this big of Burgundy and this big of California. I can really do whatever I want as long as I meet 
the budget targets and we're selling wine and we're teaching our staff about wine and guests are happy. So it's really kind of easy in that sense. So if but, I if I want to freak out on the Jura, I can do that. And so and nobody's gonna say, hey, don't you know, get those weirdo wines off of our list. Like you say, I mean we we have something for everyone, but that's also that's kind of that is the Danny influence as well. We have everyone from every walk of life walking in there. They're not all seasoned pros like you uh, or me. It's people who see us in Zagat's or their friend told them they should go when they make their first trip to New York from Iowa or wherever. Um, we need something for everyone in terms of price point, in terms of style and approachability. So while I might may not go out myself and order the $200 you know, heavily oaked California cab ever, 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 um, I know that I need to provide that. And I also need to have a $50 one. Um, so I can't do the... Su- I have lots of latitude. What I can't do is like the super focused list, like my husband's a trestle, for instance, where it's fits on two pages and it's all cold climate. Nobody brings him, you know, Southern Rhone wines to taste. He won't buy them. Uh, or I love what Lee Campbell is doing at Renard's and at Romans, sort of an Andrew Tarlow worlds, all focused on natural wine, which is the little guys. Um, lots of cool, funky stuff, which I will go out and order, but I can't at a restaurant as big and and busy and high profile as ours do that. So I can entertain myself though in small ways within our big list and do the funky stuff. Um, but I think that mix of styles, the influences of Paul and Karen and then Danny overall have totally shaped the way it is now and the way it looks now, the way I feel about wine and the way I teach our staff about wine. So having something for everyone is really kind of a function of a good service. Like it's... Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, mm-hmm. really, we can geek out about wine all we want, but the point is not what I like to drink or what... It's about taking care of the guests. So we get all walks and we get the industry people who want the weirdo stuff. And then we get the non-industry people who want nothing to do with orange wine or, you know, anything like that. So we... Again, it's about service and taking care. I mean, there is a business mission. I mean, obviously, we need to be have a level of sales and and attention and all of that. Um, so I have to be mindful of that. And it is a business. So given who's coming to see us, I need to provide something for all of those people to enjoy. As you you, you know, you've kind of been there for a bit, and you've seen price points change mm. quite a bit. Has that pushed you into different areas or different producers that maybe you wouldn't have considered originally? Or how have things changed because price points have changed? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not sure that our that while the economy and all that has changed, I don't know that our overall price points and things have changed because it's always been a really wide range. Um, and when I say wide range, with a serious concentration probably – in the hundreds or lower. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt about that. I, I mean, just wonder, like, if Mounier is more expensive now and you have to get something else, how does that change what you end up doing? Fair enough. I mean, it means you have to look a little beyond sometimes the comfortable and familiar and start looking at the little guys um, as the more prominent ones in, obviously, the you know classic regions like Burgundy and Piedmont and the like. As those prices, yes, go up, then I'm looking at, new books, when I say new books, new to me, you know, importers that I'm 
just coming and, you know, finding out about or new companies that start. And, you know, having been in the position you have for years and years, the last thing you necessarily want is somebody else coming to you Mm -hmm. with their new book um, because you already deal with 40 people uh, in relationships. and, And sometimes the last thing you need is that new person. But every now and then someone comes in the door and knocks you out with some random thing you weren't looking for. And that sometimes is probably the answer to those rising price points. There might be the little burgundy guy that not being, I love burgundy, but I'm not a huge nerd uh, in terms of burgundy. Haven't had that opportunity like the madrigals of the world to go live and work in burgundy um, that I come across a little, little guy that I've never tasted before and who, since he's not well-known, costs a lot less. And so that will sometimes get people in the door and onto the list as you're right, as, as prices go up. How important is wine by the glass to you? I feel like the program's always been like really strong. Huge. Um, and that is definitely a, sorry about the noise. Uh, that is definitely a direct influence, I would say, of Steve and then Paul. I think the whole centerpiece of the beverage program at Gramercy has always been the wine by the glass program. Um, that from day one, and that's, we're going on 19 years now. So for me, that is the epicenter of it all. That is the snapshot of the list from the classic to the esoteric to the pricey, you know, from the pricey to the very modest. And I feel like that's where what we do is captured. Um, And I don't think about that consciously all the time now, because it's just a part of me and I'm tasting and having experiences and thinking, I got to have this and it might not fit at the moment, but I'm going to find a way to get it on there eventually, even if, you know, I might not need that fourth, I might not need that fourth Sauvignon right now, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but I'll find time for it later, Mm -hmm. um, find a space for it. But that is the, definitely the, I would say, feature point of our program. The sort of beating heart of it, if you will, that kind of sets the standard for what the rest of the list looks like. And I definitely inherited that view of the world from Paul, even to the degree that we never had half bottles, much to people's frustration for all of these years, which Paul always pounded into my and our heads was because he didn't want to distract and detract from the wine by the glass program which was the heart and soul of the program and felt like that half bottles would take away from that. And I actually recently implemented a half bottle page on our list uh, to give it a go after talking over the years to various peers in the business who actually felt like it boosted sales. Um, I was afraid it would cut into sales, um, which it's not doing. It's really interesting. Um, And so I've been under that influence, but branching out again in my own small ways, including the radical half bottle program (laughs) so what's the difference between what sells in the tavern room and what sells in the dining room or is there Hmm. a difference i think there is probably and i don't look at those numbers broken down probably as often as i should certainly as you would expect in the white tablecloth prefix dinner kind of setting there's a high the average bottle is going to be a little higher. But what is cool, I think, about our restaurant and the tavern is that we have people sit down at the bar, which is packed on, let's say, any given Thursday night. They wait for their seat. They sit down. And then they're the ones who order the bottle of Vega Cecilia. So I feel like while overall the the average bottle ends up being higher in the main dining room, crazy stuff goes out in the tavern in what seems like the most unlikely circumstances. You know, just two dudes wandering in and sitting down at a table, too, on a random night. On you know, And they're pulling out the big guns and ordering the old Barolos and the, you know, what have you. So I think there's a real 
healthy mix there um, of price points in both rooms. So, you know, one of the things that's always impressed me about Gramercy is that it's just always been busy. It's just always been busy. Now, you've gone through two recessions. What is what do you think the secret is? I mean, you're involved in how things are priced. You see what the service is like. You know the food. Um, what what is it that makes that place packed all the time? I think it's what's come to be known as our way of taking care of people, mm-hmm. making fe- people feel comfortable, whether it be at the bar or for a business dinner in the dining room. Um, I, I really do think it's the level of service and not service in terms of technical service. I mean, that's good too, laying silverware properly and quietly. It, unobtrusively is all part and parcel of it, but I think not just technical service, but the actual care, the experience that is created, whether it be truly interactive or not. Not everybody wants to talk to their waiter about wine or food or anything else. Sometimes it is all business that way, but so often people do engage our staff or us as managers and and are there for that sort of interactive experience. Whatever it is they're looking for, no messing with them or interaction. I feel like we provide a comfort zone, a comfortable place for everyone um, with pretty extraordinary food and beverage there also as part of it. So they all go together, just that amazing care and also just the quality of the product that we're putting out, um, whether it be food or wine or cocktails or whatever it is. So when I, you know, because I, I used to dine in, during the Tom Colicchio area, kind of towards the end at Gramercy, and then I've I've dined many times with Michael Anthony, and it seems to me as a casual observer that his touch is maybe a little lighter mm-hmm. um, with the cuisine. How has the list changed to kind of pair with that, or what did you find yourself doing when Michael Anthony came on? Well, it, there's definitely been a shift. Um, I, I would say... Well, this is what I, when I sit down with our new staff to taste through the whole wine by the glass list, I talk about its orientation and its nature. And part of what I explain to them is what I'll say to you, which is that luckily Mike and I have similar palates uh, in terms of food and wine. But the way that comes together is that his food does have a lighter hand than Tom's. It is very much vegetable based. It's very much oil and vinegar and vegetable stocks, vegetable purees not to the exclusion of meat or dairy, but very light on those things. Um, not heavy reductions, not finishing with a ton of butter or cream or anything like that. Not that that was Tom's style either, but still, Mike's touch is lighter, uh, very acid-driven, as is my palate, as it happens. But more importantly than my palate is the fact that I would say that the wine lineup reflects that as well. We do need to provide something for everyone. So you can get your Oki Shard or Cab, for sure. Um, by the glass, that's a little tougher. Um, and especially with the by the glass program, as I it will explain to new staff, I'm looking to line up with Mike's cooking. So the nature of the wine list is clean, pure, sort of unadorned wines, not a lot of oak, not tending towards the sort of new world overripe style, uh, which luckily the pendulum seems to be sw- swinging back on. But in any case, um, clean expressive, pure wines to go with his style of food, which is that. And one of the things that I've always kind of really admired about Gramercy is that it seems like there's just kind of an endless supply of back vintage like Barolo and other items that pop up by the glass or on the list. I mean, what are you really sitting on down there? Is it like the Fort Knox of <laughs> of Bovio? I mean, I'll it's just, tell. there's just tell always you, something that's you. like, you know, eight years old by the glass or, I mean, yeah. how does it really work? We've, 
gotten lucky in some regards. Um, people know what to bring me uh, now. I feel like you know the reps. You mean the reps? Yeah, the uh, the reps know what to look for and what to offer. So if they've got some kooky stuff that can be had at a better price, um, the really tuned in ones will be sure to let me know that. Um, so a lot of it is that my and the people I work with getting to know each other's styles and potential offerings, um, my asking the right questions, um, looking for things that maybe not everybody is looking for, because we can also pour, we can have a pretty high price point. I'm working on pushing it up a little, but expanding my horizons in terms of wine by the glass pricing. So for instance, I just put on yesterday, Quince Raleigh Valpolicella 2000. Now it's not cheap. It's $30 a glass, but for that it's actually That's a great, it's a great price yeah. everyone should go right now right now uh limited supply get it while you can um we are lucky to have some of those things through a long-standing relationship of a certain importer with danny meyer um which gave us access to a lot of older cool stuff like the bovio like the quinterelli um and we've got some stocks of that hanging about to tap into so that is definitely one source but otherwise it's just having people get to know me and what I'm looking for and um, and offer those things up. So, I mean, I think who you're talking about is Robert Chatterton. He mm-hmm. comes up in Danny Meyer's book as uh, kind of a key early influence about wine. They, I think they traveled together. Um, what, what was your experience working with Chatterton in terms of a lot of people have their stories about him on the phone and, or the, the quiz at the office? But, I mean, what happened for you? Uh, for me, it was all phone, uh, no quiz at the office. Uh, that was offered to me, but having heard about those experiences from, in fact, my predecessors, uh, Paul and Karen both, wasn't really interested for signing up for that. Um, I was pretty... It's all Swiss wine. I think that's the answer. You just say, (laughs) well, sir, I believe wine one through six are all Swiss. Yes. Dole de Vitros. That's it. I know it. Um, Yeah, I opted out of that experience. I didn't need to be made to feel less competent than I was, which is how people generally came out of that. Oh, is that um, true? Yeah, a little bit. Um, because when I looked at the 11 Madison Park list when, when at the time that you guys were joined together in one company, I felt that that was much more influenced by Chatterton than very, yours during very, the same time. Very much so. I mean, but that's because each restaurant has its own individual wine director. So mm-hmm. whoever is in that position, like I said, has a lot of control, influence. Gen- there is a leeway. Gen- gen- there's a lot of leeway. So yeah. If my orientation were towards all of those wines, I could have had a list. We could have had a list that looked like that too, uh, in the sort of early EMP sort of way. But remember, I'm a child of Paul Greco, the ultimate maverick, and he didn't really like to be told what to do. And so he wasn't inclined to stuff the list full of Chatterton. Uh, And so, I mean, admittedly, I inherited probably a little bit of that leaning. Um, to do our own thing, um, yet at the same time recognizing that he has and had more had than has now. I think amazing wines. So yeah, they, Quintarelli. They, yeah, for, Quintarelli. Yeah. For God's sakes, you know. So they were there for the taking. Some of them still are. So I am completely taking advantage of that and and grateful for it. So I mean, let me ask you. Ralph goes to open Trestle on 10th, and mm-hmm. then you don't leave Gramercy because you guys had mm-hmm. talked about maybe opening a restaurant together. I remember. You're coming into the restaurant. We talked. It seemed like you guys were scoping out 
when I was a soulmate, mm-hmm. you came in to dine. It seemed like you guys were scoping out different ideas for uh, service for your own place, what other places were looking like, because you were out dining, fine dining restaurants. Sure. You know, it's always a big sign that somebody's going to open their own place when they're out <laughs> dining a lot. You're like, what are you doing all the time around Yeah. So, I mean, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you do front of the house with Trestle? Well, the way the timing worked out is that when Karen was ready, she was ready to leave Gramercy at a point. She did her turn there for about a year and a half, but then she ultimately, after decades on the floor of a restaurant, was ready to change it up. And so she ended up going to the dark side, the sales side of wine. Uh, and... um the, the job was opening up, and I was then really officially the assistant beverage director. Kevin was comfortable in his GM shoes, and it was my time. It, I was offered the opportunity to take over um, right at the time when Rolf was getting closer to, you know, business plan was done, et cetera, et cetera, where we were getting closer to doing what is now Trestle. Um, but I just felt like I had been preparing myself really not even consciously all the time, but preparing myself. My life was leading me towards getting to be the wine director at Gramercy. So I had to choose, and uh, it was difficult, um, but I chose to stay at Gramercy and let him continue on. Uh, as it happens, on a practical level, that was a great thing because it was another probably two years before Trestle opened. In Rolf's mind, it was just maybe six months away. Right. So it was at a, this critical juncture, um, that at kind of the 11th hour, it seemed, that I pulled out and said, I really want to do the Gramercy thing. He was supportive. He was certainly distressed at first, but supportive nonetheless. Um, and we quickly realized it was good that I kept my day job because it took a couple of years to open Trestle of his not working and focusing on that. So on a practical level, it was a real good thing that I didn't give that opportunity up. Um, so we had some income. And um, I think things probably have, you know evolved for the best. Um, we're still married, um, which <laughs> had we been together 24-7, who knows? Uh, and that could happen sometime in the future, possibly. But um, I think... For the time being, we realized, hey, nothing wrong with having separate existences uh, that still very much overlap. I mean, our worlds are so intertwined in terms of people and things and wines and all that that, you know, we're part and parcel of the same world, really, just doing it in different spots. So, And what do you think is next for you? And by you, I also mean what do you think is next for the list? I mean, what's going on? Hmm. Um, for me, uh, well, first of all, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I am thoroughly enmeshed in what I'm doing and still love my job and what I do and who I do it with and for. Um, so I'm, I'm not giving that up. Uh, somebody will have to run me over with a bus. Um, in terms of the list, there is a piece of me that wants to scale it back a little bit in terms of numbers of bottles, edit it a little more heavily, um, not, not take away the aspect of something for everyone, but just reel it in a little bit, maybe not so many of so many things. Um, Is that so the staff could learn more about what's there or why would that be? Why would that be? Well, I think there's an element to my being able to do whatever I want. So I do whatever I want and that's great. But then there should be maybe a little more discrimination just to make it, yes, to make it a little less daunting for the staff. It's grown over time by how many bottles, I don't know, but it that does make it a bit daunting for both guests and staff. I mean, it's a wide offering, and that's wonderful, but I think that I could probably reel it in. Um, I am 
I've been on the verge of creating a new section for like two years that I just can't find the time to do, which is simply to put all in one place, all the sort of weirdo wines, like uh-huh. the orange wines, the oxidized wines, all of those, which are currently scattered and not singled out. And those are the bottles that get ordered and rejected. Ret- returns, yeah. When this, the, it happens that the server who's ordered it doesn't know. Doesn't know the um, radicons. It, exactly. Um, and even something not as scary as Montbourgeois Chardonnay. I mean, it's not a crazy Jirah style, but it's got a little hint of it. And those are guaranteed to be sent back if the server doesn't know to have that conversation. Um, so literally, I just get so busy, I can't stop and focus on it. But I want to just create a section that is all those wines. And I've been hung up on what to call it for about a year. And that's definitely hindered my doing it. But so that's a small thing. But it, all those little changes, there are a lot of big moving parts. So just to add a new section to the list is a bit of a project. Uh, and I've done it over time, but it's time to do it again. Half bottles were most recent. And then I want to find a place to put all those sort of weirdo wines that I love into one spot. Um, otherwise, nothing truly radical coming. Um, maybe little bits of reorganization here and there. But it ebbs and flows with the seasons. Rosé, I'm going to start to... We have probably 20 rosés on by the bottle now, but I'm starting to let those run down. And you know, other things will increase and um, champagnes, you know, a number of champagnes will start to, while I don't like to think of champagne as seasonal, we all, wino people talk about it as wine and something to have with a meal. We all know that that's not how most of the rest of the world approaches champagne. Um, so that will expand now going into the next couple of months, rosés will shrink, et cetera. So there's that sort of seasonal fluctu- fluctuation too. That if is. you could go back now and just give a piece of advice to the younger self that was working the line at Zoe, what would you say? Hmm. Do what you're doing. I don't think I would change Because it all worked out. Yeah, it all worked out. And that's what I would tell somebody who's looking to do it to go do too. Not necessarily go get a line cook job, uh, a line cook's job, but to go be a waiter, be start at the bottom. I think not to say that cooking is the bottom, that's more the back, but but starting as just a grubby line cook, you know, or salad maker, uh, or in the front of the house as a back waiter or bar back, I think that's the way to go. It's it's not about walking out of culinary school or a wine certification and putting on a suit and going out and looking and smelling pretty and, you know, talking about the different appellations of, you know, the Southern Rhone. It's just not. That's not what it's about. I think you have to get in and get down and dirty and get to know the the place and the process and, and really feel it before you can really transmit the best possible experience um, for your staff and your guests. So, Thanks, Julia. Yeah, sure. Juliet Pope of Gramercy Tavern took a moment to tell us about her day working for Danny Meyer at one of the best restaurants in the world. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. 
and thank you for listening.